Well, good morning. Thanks for braving the weather. Uh, so we've been kind of going through a topic called bibliology, that is doctrine of scripture, and, uh, and then moving into a section that we'll call uh, hermeneutics, uh, that is uh, how do we interpret scripture. So kind of what is scripture and then how do we interpret it. And we've kind of taken a, a, a bit of a break uh, in this section in order to kind of talk about how the doctrine of scripture has developed over time. And so we looked at uh, the doctrine of scripture in the patristic period, that's the period of the church fathers. Uh, into the medieval period, into the Reformation, and then last week we kind of looked at uh, the, the history of the English Bible. And, uh, and so one of the reasons that we've done that is just to give us this greater appreciation for this book that's in front of us, uh, that, uh, that even 500 years ago, the, the overwhelming majority of Christians had never read the Bible and could not read the Bible and had no access uh, to a Bible. There would have been one Bible in the entire city or whatever it might have been, and, uh, and so by studying history, we can have a greater appreciation uh, for uh, God's word and for the opportunity that we have uh, to read it and to respond to it and so forth. The vast majority of us probably have five, six, seven, eight uh, Bibles in our home. Uh, that is a historical sort of anomaly. And so I wanted to begin this morning just by kind of having you do a little exercise. And so uh, if you want to get with somebody around you and, uh, and just take a couple of minutes, we'll do maybe two minutes or so, and I want you to just name as many versions or translations of the Bible as you can possibly do off the top of your head. No using Google. I know you have smartphones and so forth, but just off the top of your head, what are all of the translations or versions of the Bible you can think of? So you have about two minutes for that, and then I'll come back up. All right. Hopefully that got uh, your brain going a little bit. And, uh, and so we'll talk about a few of these here in a moment. Let me tell you where we're going to go uh, this morning in our time together. I want to answer three, three main questions. Uh, the first one being, why are there so many translations of the Bible? Uh, as you've just noted, uh, some of you might have gotten 10, 15, 20, 30 or so. Why are there so many translations? Uh, why do we as a church here at Parkway, why do we preach and teach from the ESV? And then related to that, uh, as part of the answer to that, why do we prefer what, uh, what we'll uh, talk about in a moment, a particular type of translation that is uh, formal, it's called formal equivalence, and, uh, and so we'll talk about that in uh, a few moments. But those are the three questions that we want to answer today. Why so many translations? Why do we prefer the ESV? And then uh, related to that, why do we prefer translations that are this particular type of translation and we'll get into that. So first, why are there so many translations, all right? And so we'll go through a number of different reasons, the first one being uh, money, especially within the past century or so, within the, the, the past generation, there has been this increase in uh, the sale of Bibles and so forth. And so not only is the Bible the uh, most sold book of all time, you've probably heard that stat before, it's the most sold book of all time, every single year, uh, that they can track uh, going back as far as uh, back as they can. It is the best-selling book of that particular year as well. And so this is a massive business, $500 million or so uh, a year in regards to uh, Bible sales. And so there is this market uh, for Bibles. According to uh, some stats I looked up online, the most popular versions, uh, what would you guess would be number one? The NIV, absolutely correct uh, in, in regards to number of sales. NIV is number one. What would you think is number two? King James. You guys are great. What about third? Actually, New Living Translation. Then number four, New King James. <laughs> the youth back there are really getting into it. Number five, English Standard Version. Number six, uh, what's called the Common English Bible. Number seven, Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, which is now, uh, they dropped the name Holman, but that's the, the book of the uh, Lifeway and FB, SBC and so forth. Number eight, a Spanish version called Reina Valera. Uh, number nine, New American Standard. Number 10, New International Readers Version. And so, uh, as you might have noted in uh, listing out some translations and so forth, there are all kinds of translations. I was looking online. I found a skater's Bible. I don't know what that means, but it's a skater's Bible, a Bible just for skaters. Uh, I, found, uh, I found a wom woman's Bible, for, so apparently just for women. I didn't find a men's Bible, but I did find cowboy Bible. And uh, so I looked up cowboy Bible and uh, looked up a number of passages. And uh, pretty much all of the references in the cowboy Bible, uh, instead of saying God, it says boss. He's the boss. 
And, uh, and then uh, Philippians 1.6, uh, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion, says this, you can be sure that the cowboy who started you on the right trail will ride with you till the end. And, uh, and so some of my favorite names of virgins, the beloved and I, New Jubilee's version of the sacred scriptures in verse. There's also an e- easy English Bible and an easy to read version. There's an inclusive Bible, so not saying that yours is necessarily exclusive, but uh, this one certainly is not. And then what's probably my favorite is the Personal Promise Bible. You ever seen these? Uh, you can literally have your name inserted in there. So it's, it would say, you read Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is Jeff's shepherd. Jeff shall not want. Uh, it also would then allow me the opportunity, if I wanted to, to have Casey's name put in there. Uh, and so uh, Ephesians 5, Jeff, love Casey like Christ loved the church. Or I could have her name inserted into Song of Solomon or whatever it might be. This is kind of weird, but this is a, a real thing, the personal promise uh, Bible. So that's the first one. This is, there is a, a financial element to why there are so many translations. But really, that's only been the case uh, for maybe the past 50 years or so. Uh, prior to that, that was not at all uh, the driving reason. And, uh, and so I mentioned this first only because it is uh, relevant, uh, but it is not uh, historically uh, a compelling reason for why there's so many translations. Uh, one of the main reasons that there are a number of translations are uh, because they're trying to hit different audiences. So not just cowboys versus women versus skaters uh, or whatnot, uh, but also just different reading levels. And, uh, and so think about the difference between uh, someone who might have a PhD and, uh, and someone who is just learning to read at uh, four or five or six or whatever it might be. And uh, so there's various uh, audiences. And so each different uh, translation of the Bible tends to have kind of a, a numerical value assigned to it in regards to what uh, reading level they think uh, this Bible hits at. And so let me give you some of the uh, some of the uh, more major ones. And so the King James, that's kind of a 12th grade uh, reading level. Anybody know what the average uh, reading level for an American is? It's about 7th to 8th grade, all right? And so uh, if you read the King James and you feel like it is a little bit, uh, not only just archaic, but uh, if you feel like it is a little bit over your head, it, is, uh, it tends to be over the head of the majority of just kind of average uh, Americans and whatnot. The Amplified Bible is about 11th grade level. Uh, the NASB, 11th grade. The New King James, 8th grade. NIV, about uh, somewhere between 7th and 8th grade. The ESV, somewhere between 7th and 8th grade. Uh, NLT, around uh, between 6th and 7th. The Message, here's what's fascinating about the Message. Uh, so the Message is a paraphrase, but the Message has, depending on the passage, everywhere from a f- uh, about a 5th grade reading level all the way up to a 10th grade reading level. So it's really not consistent uh, within itself in regards to the reading level. Uh, and then you have uh, children's Bibles and so forth, which are at a 3rd grade, 2nd grade, whatever it might uh, be. And so that's one of the reasons that there are a number of different translations because of uh, different audiences and different reading levels and so forth. But in general... Uh, as we look at those stats, you'll see the, mass, the, the vast majority of translations that you might choose, whether it's the NLT or the NIV or the ESB uh, or uh, the Christian Standard or something like that, all of those tend to fall within about uh, one grade level of each other. And so oftentimes you will hear that a particular translation is over uh, your head or something like that. And oftentimes that's not actually the case. Just objectively speaking, that's not the case. It's just the fact that it is a bit unfamiliar. You grew up with a particular tradition. You grew up reading from the NIV. And even though the ESV might be the exact same uh, reading level, it's going to seem harder. Why? Because it's unfamiliar. It's a little bit foreign to you and so forth. So it should just be a bit encouraging for you as you begin to wrestle through uh, what translation uh, you're going to use long term uh, to recognize that the overwhelming majority of uh, versions that you can choose from are within sort of the 6th to 8th grade uh, level. A third reason there's so many translations because of uh, printing errors. 
So this happens uh, even in modern translations. There are uh, typos and so forth. We talked about how there are variants in our manuscript uh, traditions and so forth. Uh, But even in modern translations, there tend to be places where typos will creep into uh, the text. But especially before that. So think about that that process of copying by hand. And uh, and so you're bound to uh, repeat a word or leave out a word or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so even the original 1611 King James Version, the very first printing, they actually sent the copy to two different printers to print it, and those came back uh, vastly different. There were, there were a couple of hundred or so uh, differences between those two original translations. And, uh, and so let me give you some of my uh, favorite, most unfortunate examples of printing errors in uh, the Bible. Uh, there's one that's called the Vinegar Bible. Uh, in 1717, because it talks about the parable of the vinegar rather than the vineyard. There's a version that speaks about, uh, it says, if a man, uh, and it means to say, if a man hates someone, instead it says, ate someone. Uh, And so kind of the cannibalistic Bible. Uh, You have a wicked Bible in 1631. This is a famous one. They left out the word not in, uh, in one of the Ten Commandments, and so it says, thou shalt commit adultery. Right? And so you have an actual Bible that says, thou shalt commit adultery. You have another one uh, probably written by the same person who wrote our original uh, membership covenant here. Uh, if, you, if you have ever gotten on and, and looked at our original membership covenant, uh, for those who've joined in the past uh, six months or so, we've already corrected this. But whenever I joined, uh, I looked and I signed the covenant, and it said that I uh, covenant uh, to pursue ungodliness. And, uh, and so, likewise, there was a, uh, a Bible that we call the Unrighteous Bible, 1653, which said, the unrighteous shall inherit the earth. And uh, so, obviously, they just accidentally put in the word, uh, or, or the prefix un, on there. There's a murderer's Bible, which has Jesus, instead of saying, let the children first be filled, it says, let the children first be killed. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, kind of to sum up all the others, there is a... Uh, uh, a, a version that instead of saying that princes have persecuted me, it says printers have uh, persecuted me, which is kind of true for all of these others. So uh, that is another reason for all of these different versions and translations and so forth, that uh, over time they recognize that in a, uh, a tradition of translation there are a number of typographical or whatever it uh, might be errors, and so uh, they will um, make a new version or a new translation or whatever it might be. Another one. Uh, there are different underlying manuscript traditions. And so different versions look at different manuscript traditions in regards to making their translation. So the, the main ones that you have are you have certain uh, uh, Bibles only go back. They don't go back to the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. They go back to the Latin Vulgate. Uh, what translations would you expect those to be used by what church? The Roman Catholic Church, yeah. So most Roman Catholic churches uh, or most Roman Catholic translations of Scripture into English, which they do have now, uh, we've talked before about how historically they were very reticent uh, to have translations in the common vernacular, but now we do have those. But by and large, those don't go back to the original Greek and Hebrew. Those go back to the Vulgate because for them that is the inspired uh, text. And, And so in addition to that, you have... Uh, a number of translations that don't go back to the Vulgate. They go back to Greek uh, manuscripts and so forth, uh, but they go back to a particular form of those that have uh, a tradition that is kind of grounded in the work of Erasmus. If you remember, we talked about Erasmus, and, uh, and he was one of the first to kind of come up with a, 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 a sort of modern Greek translation of the Scripture, and it was called, does anybody remember what it was called? The Textus Receptus, that is the received uh, text. And so the King James Version goes back to that, and that's what they use. And we talked about how, uh, although uh, there is a lot of good that came with Erasmus' translation, there is also uh, some some difficulties that come with it in that his uh, translation was only based upon a handful of manuscripts, and all of those being... Uh, late medieval manuscripts, so tenth, uh, eleventh, twelfth century, uh, and so forth. And so, uh, those are a number of of uh, manuscript traditions. Most translations, though, don't go back to the Vulgate. They don't go back to the Textus uh, Textus Receptus. Instead, they go all the way back to something that's called a critical text. 
uh, and that is kind of taking all of the best of all of the manuscript evidence that we have, compiling that into one text, and then using that as the Greek and Hebrew uh, basis. And so that's a fourth reason there are a number of translations, because there have different uh, underlying manuscript traditions. A fifth reason, there are all kinds of theological distinctives. And so uh, if you're reading the early King James Version, you'll notice there, are, uh, there is an intentional attempt on the author's part uh, to try to kind of do away with some uh, of the sort of historic Romanisms, kind of the Roman Catholic way of, of communicating something. And so instead of using a phrase like do penance, they're going to uh, have the, the word repentance. Uh, instead of talking about uh, a church, they might say congregation. Instead of uh, in, uh, translating a word uh, as bishop, they're going to say, or priest, they're going to say uh, elder or pastor or whatever it might be. And so there are a number of theological distinctives that drive um, our translations, including what we talked about, I think, last week or the week before in the Q&A which is the New World Translation, which is the, the translation that's kind of used by Jehovah's Witness and so forth. So obviously, there's a very compelling theological reason uh, that drives that particular translation. And uh, so that's a fifth reason. Uh, the last two, I think, are the, the, the two most important. So the sixth one being semantic shift. We've talked about this before. Uh, there is this, this reality that's called semantic shift. In other words, language changes over time. Language changes over time. So think about even when you were a kid, there are certain words that no longer mean what they used to mean, uh, certain words that you used to be able to use that now you can't use. For whatever reason, just language is a dynamic thing. It's a shifting thing. It's not some sort of uh, static reality. It's, it's ever moving and so forth. So think about the first English translation was about 600 years ago. King James uh, came out about 400 years ago. And, uh, and the way that language changes, we've talked about this before, egregious used to mean something really good. Um, now it means something that is bad. Uh, the word guy used to mean a person of grotesque appearance. The word nice used to mean uh, someone who is uh, ignorant or foolish. So if you said, I'm going to go meet a nice guy, that person is ignorant and foolish and ugly or of grotesque appearance, whatever it might be, all right? So language changes over time, and this comes out in the Bible. I put a number of different words there on your sheet you can look at that are from uh, the uh, sort of first hundred or so years of the King James Version. They had words like cockatrice and collops and hoist and wimples and kneesing and shirtership Sounds like a word that like, you accidentally used and then you tried to convince your buddy that it really was a word, suretyship. Sackbutt, no comment on that. And then scrabbled, which is the verb that I use after I win and scrabbled. I say, you, you got scrabbled. Um, but these words also affect meaning. So the, obviously these, these words are archaic. We no longer use these words uh, before. I can't remember the last time someone uh, used hoist or wimples uh, or something like that. But they affect meaning, all right? And, uh, and so they're not just archaic words. At times, because of this shift that happens, a word no longer means what it used to mean. And so if you read it from a modern lens, instead of how it was originally intended, you have, you're misled. So for instance, if you read in the King James Version about a mean man, you tend to think about someone who's angry, someone who's mad, uh, someone who's cruel, but in the King James, in the 1600s and so forth, the word mean just meant common. Sort of like we use mean, median, average sort of thing. I mean, it meant common. So a mean man is not someone who's cruel or unkind. Uh, in the context of the King James Version, it's someone who is just common, just a common person. Uh, or the word meat, we've talked about this before. If you're told to bring a sacrifice of meat, we think flesh. But in the King James, in the, in the 1600s, the word meat just meant uh, any solid food, including vegetables. Uh, and so you can see how that might be misleading if we were not to update languages and uh, translations and so forth. The word cherish, it, it originally meant to keep warm, and now it means to care about. The word let, this is an interesting one, it used to mean prevent. Now it means the exact opposite, right? Let somebody do something means to allow them to do something, but it used to mean... Uh, uh, to mean prevent. So you can see how if, uh, 
if um, a translation, if you're reading the King James or whatever it might be, and it says, let somebody do this, you're going to have the exact opposite response uh, to what the Bible says uh, because of the changing uh, nature of language. Or wealth. Uh, Wealth used to mean kind of welfare, uh, health, general good, and so forth. And now it means riches. So there's uh, passages uh, in early translations that talk about seeking the wealth of others. All right? And so that's actually something that is exact opposite in regards to what we should do. I should not seek the, the financial wealth uh, of uh, others within the church. I should seek their welfare. I should seek their good and so forth. And so this changing language uh, is going to be one of the reasons uh, that, uh, that we have all of these translations. And so a guy named William Barclay said this, there's a sense in which a translation begins to go out of date on the day when it is completed, for language is never static but always on the move. I think that's an important thing to recognize, that language is constantly shifting. And therefore, we are constantly in need of shifting translations. So if you're using, let's say, the NIV today or the ESV today, probably in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, at least uh, by the time that your uh, children are grown, there is going to be a need for updates. And most translations, most modern translations, are going to be constantly updating as language is uh, going to be uh, changing and so forth. They'll adapt. The last one, I think, is the most important. Uh, the last reason that there are multiple translations is because there are different translation philosophies uh, which are driving those uh, translations, different translation uh, philosophies. So this is the biggest reason, the most important, I think, for you to, uh, to recognize. So what I want to do is I want to talk about, you have a, a, a little spectrum or continuum on your sheet. There's also one up here on the board, and so we just want to kind of walk through that. And uh, so this is a, a continuum. You can see every translation that you can imagine would be somewhere on uh, this uh, continuum. I put a few of them up on your uh, sheet that you can look at. On this side of it, you have what's called formal equivalence. Uh, what it means by that, uh, the root word form, it has the same form as the original text. In other words, the same words. All right. On the other end, you have what's called a dynamic, as in moving, or a functional equivalence. It has the same function as the original text. In other words, that the, the audience is intended to read it the same way that the original readers would. On this end, you have what's called a word-for-word approach. Uh, on that end, you have a thought-for-thought approach. This is, tends to be essentially literal. In other words, we're trying to retain uh, as close as possible the Greek word, uh, that is used, I'm going to use a corresponding English word, wherever possible. That's, uh, it's never uh, 100% possible. Uh, and then on this end of the spectrum, you would have more of a paraphrase sort of approach. Does that make sense, the continuum? And, uh, and so there are different translation philosophies which uh, with each translation kind of falls somewhere on this continuum in regards to what they think is the ideal way to translate Scripture. Is it that you want the exact words as close as possible? Or is it more that you want just kind of the general thought, the general idea and so forth? So we'll talk about, uh, in a few moments, we'll talk about why we tend to prefer things that are on this side of the spectrum, the formal equivalent side of the spectrum. Uh, But first, let's talk a little bit about uh, the way that language works. So uh, anybody who's studied language knows there is no real word-for-word approach to translation. Right? There is no way that you can take one word in English and, uh, and, and have it correspond to another word in another language, and that be the case 100% of the time. And, uh, and so, uh, as an example of this, one time I was preaching in Romania, and, uh, and I did not know what I was doing. It was literally my first time to ever preach. And, uh, and it was kind of off-the-cuff sort of thing, just the pastor that we were, we were literally there to do VBS, and he asked me to come and uh, preach in his church. And, uh, and so I didn't have anything prepared and so forth, so I started preaching out of Colossians chapter 3. And I used the word affections, and I found that whenever I used the word affections, he said about 20 Romanian words, all right? I don't know what those Romanian words were, but I found every time I said the word affection, he said about 20 different Romanian words, which meant to me that now every time I don't know what I'm going to say next, if I just say the word Romain, uh, affection, 
that I have about 10 seconds or so where he's saying all these other words that I can think of, what am I going to say next? And, uh, and so that's the way that language works. At times, there is not a direct correspondence between one word and another. Take the, the Hebrew word shalom, all right? Uh, the word generally means something like peace, right? But it also has connotations of welfare, of, uh, of, of health, of calm, of a lack of chaos, and so forth. And so there's really no one word that we can use in English that perfectly encapsulates all of the connotations of the Hebrew word uh, shalom. And, uh, and so there's no real opportunity for us to do something that is purely word for word. Every translation is uh, to some degree taking into account uh, the way that language is going to function, especially when it comes to things like uh, idioms. All right, and so you're familiar with uh, idioms. Uh, an idiom is uh, a phrase in which the, the uh, meaning is not contained in the words themselves, but in that phrase as a whole. Does that make sense? The meaning is not contained within the words itself, but in the phrase uh, as a whole. So I found uh, a really interesting one in French. I can't pronounce French, uh, and so I'll try. Jaila Kafard or something like that. That sounds uh, Arabic. Uh, my French sounds Arabic. But uh, uh, it, it means I have the cockroach. I have the cockroach, all right? And, uh, and it's a phrase that generally just means to, if you say that to a French person, they, uh, they interpret it the same way that we would interpret the phrase, I am depressed. Uh, that, that's what that means to them. But literally, I have the cockroach uh, does not communicate uh, depression, unless like you're filled with cockroaches, in which that would be depressing for anybody. Uh, but that's not literally what it means. You, you think about English idioms, like eat your heart out, all right? We obviously don't mean that, literally, uh, you mean that as an idiom, blow your mind, punch the clock, bite the bullet, break a leg, all of these sorts of things. So these sort of things show up in Scripture, and what translators are trying to do is they're trying to figure out uh, how literal do I need to be here. And so sometimes you'll see a really literal uh, version of an idiom, and, uh, and it's, maybe even that idiom has entered into uh, sort of modern uh, vocabulary and so forth. So you might, you might be uh, reading a translation of the Scripture, and it might say something like, gird up your loins, gird up your loins. And so uh, what that means is uh, you would typically be wearing a longer robe, and so you would take it and you would tie it, uh, and then therefore you could run, you could walk a long distance, you could do work, whatever it might be. In other words, it means kind of be prepared, be ready, uh, be ready for action uh, and so forth. Uh, Zach talked about this uh, last week, that uh, whenever the Bible is talking about God being angry, it doesn't just use a word that just means angry. Does anybody remember what the image is? It's that God has a long nose, right? God has a long nose. And kind of the imagery is whenever you get angry, your nose turns red, like if you're in a cartoon or whatever. And, uh, and so it takes a long time for that to happen, all right? So he mentioned last week, it's not like God is Pinocchio or whatever it might be. Uh, it's not uh, being literal. God doesn't have, actually have a long nose. God doesn't have any nose. He's not a spatial being, but it's a way of communicating. It takes a long time for God to be ang uh, angered. He's slow to anger uh, and, uh, and so forth. And uh, so there's all these different idioms that, uh, that translators are trying to figure out. What, to what degree do I need to retain the original Hebrew or Greek words, uh, even when doing so at times, might be confusing to the audience. Translators don't want to confuse the audience, and so they're trying to figure out what's the proper amount of word-for-word -word versus thought-for-thought -thought, uh, translations and so forth. And uh, so we'll talk again uh, in just a few moments about why we prefer uh, things that tend to be more on this side. Uh, but first, let me give you a few reasons. Why do we prefer the ESV? So here at uh, the Parkway Church, uh, we tend to preach from and teach from uh, the ESV. And so uh, let me just say this uh, by way of just kind of introduction and, and qualifier and so forth and say, uh, I'm not trying to convince you to go out. If you've been using the NIV uh, for the past 20 years and that works for you and you love it and so forth, then use it. It's a good translation. As we talked about uh, last week or the week before, there's no bad translation of the Bible. Uh, uh, except for some of the ones that are used by cults and so forth. Uh, but it, by and large, the, the vast majority of uh, English translations of the Scripture are faithful and good and yes and amen, use them and so forth. I, I do think, though, 
that some are better than the others. And so I want to give you some reasons for why it is that I think the ESV uh, is a better translation and more helpful uh, for us. And so uh, that said, just let me give you a qualification. But I'm going to talk about the ESV being better. I mean better in certain contexts. I mean in particular better for this context. Uh, if, if we were having this conversation within uh, sub-Saharan Africa or something like that, and, uh, and people were just kind of English as a second language, I'd probably recommend another translation uh, for them. Or if we were uh, having conversation uh, with uh, a child who was four years old or five years old and so forth, whenever Larkin gets to be that age, I'm probably not going to be explaining everything on the basis of uh, the ESV. I'm probably going to use the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I'm going to use some other children's versions and so forth. And so when I talk about it being better, I mean relatively better for a particular context, that is for preaching and teaching and studying and so forth. So my, my history uh, with uh, the Bible, I was actually born the very year that the NIV came out, uh, but, uh, but my family used the King James Version at least for the first few years of my life. And so my earliest Bible was a King James Version. Uh, whenever I uh, got a little bit older, uh, my parents got me an NIV, and, uh, and, and so uh, that got warped up, not with use, but because I stuck it in my car at some point, and uh, it just uh, got warped in the sun because it gets really hot uh, in, uh, in Houston. I, uh, I got saved, and I kind of picked up that NIV, that warped NIV for the first time, and that's what I started reading from. And, uh, and so this was right after college. And so right after college, I started reading the, the NIV and, uh, and found uh, that uh, I wanted something that was a little more literal, something a little bit more word for word. And, uh, and so I picked up the NASB, and I used that for a couple of years or so. Uh, I really liked it. I still like the, the NASB, uh, but I found it was kind of hard uh, at times to teach from. I was leading a home group at, uh, uh, at a church and found uh, the language was sort of uh, wooden and rigid at times, and uh, it's on like an 11th grade reading level and so forth, so I'd be, I'd be teaching to certain people, uh, especially youth and so forth, and it would just be really hard to communicate, and I'd have to do a lot more over-explaining of the text than I felt was helpful. Um, the year that I was actually saved, the ESV came out, 2001, and, uh, and I found in that something that was kind of more literal than in the NIV and yet more readable than NASB, and it kind of was this, uh, for me, this perfect sort of blend of what I was looking for. And, uh, and so let me tell you what I like about the ESV, and then we'll talk about why that is. Uh, three reasons that I like the ESV. First one, it's, it's readable for the average American. All right, so the average adult American, again, reads at about a 7th or 8th grade reading level. The ESV literally kind of splits the difference. It's about a 7.4. So in other words, if you are 40% f uh, finished with your 7th grade year, um, uh, or 40%, I'm sorry, into your 8th grade year, uh, that is the reading level of the ESV. So that's the first thing, that it's readable. Kind of, it, it kind of hits right where the average American uh, hits. Uh, second reason, it retains sort of some of the literary qualities of the original text. One of the things I don't like about some translations is that they tend to kind of, in their approach that tends to be more thought for thought, they kind of lose some of the richness of language. And so I uh, have kind of the, the, the heart of a uh, mind of a poet. I love words. I like to wordsmith things. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, I found... A number of translations might kind of capture the general idea, but they lose some of the richness of the imagery and so forth. So I gave you a couple of examples, I think, on your sheet. Psalm 3510, the ESV has it saying, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you. So the imagery there, all my bones shall say this. The NIV says, my whole being will exclaim, who is like you, O Lord. Not a different meaning, but there's a richness. Uh, there's a, a, another dimension to the, the imagery of the bones are crying out. Psalm 78, um, in the ESV, it says, He made their days vanish like a breath. The NIV, he ended their day in futility. Again, the same idea, but there is a loss there. I think as we move down the spectrum, as we move down the continuum, there is a loss of the original richness of the language 
uh, that, uh, that God is using, especially within the Psalms where uh, David is this poet and he's communicating through the uh, poetry. Think about uh, if, uh, if you wrote a, uh, a card, uh, you got flowers for your wife uh, or uh, you got a present for your husband or whatever and you went to write a card uh, and let's say, you're, let's go with the flowers one and you go and you tell the florist and you say, you wrote this beautiful poem and, uh, and instead of that poem, uh, the uh, florist just wrote, I think you're swell, all right? And let's say that's the general idea of the poem. Are you going to be happy with that florist? No, absolutely not. Why not? Because it's not just the meaning that you're t- intending to communicate. You're intending to communicate that meaning through a particular medium, through a particular message. The individual words are important. And, uh, and so uh, the last reason I like the ESV is because it tends to be on this side, that is the formal equivalent side of the spectrum. In other words, it is more word for word rather than thought for thought. So why is it that we prefer translations that are on the formal equivalent side of the spectrum? Let me give you a, a few reasons here. First one, tradition. This is traditionally how translation was done. So up until the middle of the 20th century, this was by and large how all translations were done. All translations were trying to give more of a word for word approach. Uh, not obviously, they can't fully accomplish that because there's not always one word that corresponds exactly to the original uh, language and so forth. But in general, all translations up to the middle of the 20th century were a word-for-word approach. So that's one reason, uh, tradition. Second one, uh, purpose. Uh, that uh, I think that the uh, this approach, the formal equivalence, the word-for-word approach. Uh, it is going to make revelation primary and the response secondary. On the other end of the spectrum, what they're trying to do is they're trying to give, again, the functional equivalence is saying we want the function of the text to have the same function in the heart and mind of the modern reader as it did in the uh, original reader. So that puts the function of the text in us and not in God's revelation. And so I think an approach that is on this side of the spectrum tends to value the revelation over the response. Is the response to God's word important? Absolutely. But God's word itself, I think, is more important than our response. So in other words, I think these tend to be more sort of God-centered, at least in their philosophical approach uh, to translation. A third reason, um, meaning attaches to words and not just to thoughts. Think about how hardly any significant forms of communication function on a thought-for-thought approach. Not only that example with the florist, uh, but think of uh, marriage vows, legal documents, contracts, accident reports, a memorable sort of line from a sermon or teaching or something like that, the memoirs of your uh, grandmother or whatever it might be, recipes, You don't kind of give a thought-for-thought approach. You give kind of the actual words there, instructions for assembling uh, an appliance or whatever it might be, all of these sort of things. The way that language functions is not thought-for-thought. It is more of a word-for-word sort of approach. Another reason is we believe in verbal plenary inspiration. What is verbal plenary inspiration? Anybody remember? Yeah, it is that inspiration applies to every single word, not just the thoughts, not just the concepts of Scripture, but that every individual word of Scripture was inspired uh, by God. Uh, So we've talked about this before. Jesus makes uh, theological points on the basis of jots and tittles, on the basis of the smallest elements of the uh, Hebrew uh, alphabet. Uh, Jesus is going to say that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by what? by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so every word is important. You see this in in the book of Galatians where Paul is going to make a very, very important theological point for his audience on the basis of a particular word in the Old Testament which is uh, singular rather than plural. And he builds this entire theological argument on the basis of the fact that a word is singular rather than plural. So words, not just concepts, are uh, important. Let me give you an example of this. 
In the book of 1 John, there is the Greek word or, uh, or related word, minnow, not like the little fish, uh, but minnow, M-E-N-O would be how we would transliterate it, and it means to abide. It means to abide. 23 out of 24 times that you see that word in the ESV, it translates it as abide or abiding or abides or whatever it might be. The NIV, not to bash the NIV, but give an example, the NIV has five different words. Sometimes that word is translated as lives, sometimes remains, sometimes has, sometimes continues, sometimes the, just the verb is, uh, and, uh, which means that if you're studying First John, you can't see the interrelationship between all of these different uses of this particular Greek term. So it might be a huge theological point. There might be a huge theological point to make uh, by the fact that this word occurs 24 times. But the fact is, with, uh, with certain translations, you can't even see that theological point because they've used different English words uh, throughout it. Another reason that I think uh, uh, we prefer uh, things on this side of the spectrum is because we believe it's better to allow the reader to wrestle with meaning of the text within the context of his or her covenant community. In other words, I think it's, it's more important for interpretation to happen in the pulpit and in the pew rather than already happen on the page for you. Uh, and so, in other words, what's happening here, the further we get down here, the more that we're getting interpretation into the text. Why? Because the translator is having to think, what does this text mean? What, down here, they're just asking, what does it say? The more that we move this way, they're going more, what does it mean? Which means you're getting more and more commentary and not just pure translation. Does that make sense? All right. And so, is commentary a bad thing? No. No, but there is a difference when you're reading a commentary versus when you're reading the Bible. Right? And you know that difference inherently. You read a commentary and it says something and you go, that's not true. That's not what that text means. But if that commentary is embedded into the Bible itself, how do you even know that that's commentary? How do you know where the translation ends and the commentary begins? And uh, so that's a reason uh, that, uh, that we prefer, uh, prefer this sort of thing. This happens in particular. I'll give you another example of this. Uh, in regards to uh, a Greek uh, uh, concept called a genitive. A genitive would be something uh, where we would do in English, uh, let's say, the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Now, what do we mean by that? Does that mean Christ's love or the love that we have for Christ? You see how those mean different things? The love of Christ can mean either one. The love that Christ has for us, the love that we have for Christ. Either one can fit within it. Uh, the ESV just translates it the love of Christ and lets you wrestle through which one is meant there. Which one does Paul mean? Does he mean the love that you have for Christ or does he mean the love that Christ has for you? So in 2 Corinthians it says the love of Christ compels us. The ESV just leaves it ambiguous and says, you go and do the hard work. You go and talk to your pastor. You go and read commentaries. You go and read other verses. And you wrestle with which one is meant. The NIV has already made that decision for you. And it says Christ's love compels us, which very well might be what Paul means there. The point is you didn't even know, if you're reading the NIV, you didn't even know that there was an opportunity for another interpretation of that passage. And so one of the reasons that I really like the ESV is because it tends, uh, or the reason I like a formal equivalence is because it tends uh, to allow those ambiguities to be wrestled through in the context of community rather than making the, uh, the decision uh, for you. And this is the reason that Ken Taylor, who was the, uh, the original sort of uh, driving force behind the Living Bible, which is a very uh, paraphrastic, very paraphrased version, he said this, for study purposes, a paraphrase should be checked against a rigid, uh, that's another word uh, for literal, a literal translation. All right, for study purposes, a paraphrase should be checked against a rigid or literal uh, translation. And so in other words, uh, are, uh, are versions on that end of the spectrum helpful? Absolutely. They're, they're good, they're helpful, and so forth. They can be really good for uh, devotional reading and so forth, but for the purposes of studying, for the purposes of really uh, drawing out implications and so forth, you're going to need to consult against this in order to see where has commentary entered into the text versus where are you just getting 
and interpretation. The last reason that we prefer things more of a word-for-word approach is because, honestly, it makes the pastor's job uh, a bit uh, easier. It makes the pastor's job uh, a bit easier as we're preaching and teaching. Let's say that I'm preaching and we're using the message. So think far into the spectrum in regards to paraphrase. And we're using the message. I would have to spend so much time appealing to the Greek uh, that at the end of the day, what's that going to do? That's going to discourage you from reading your Bible. Why? Because the vast majority of us in this room don't read Greek. We don't read Hebrew. So if, uh, if myself or Jerry or Zach or in your home group or whatever, the, the person is always having to say, well, what this actually means in the Greek is that's going to actually kind of decrease your confidence in God's word because you're going to think, I can't do that. I can't wrestle through the language. I don't know what the meaning of the Greek is and so forth. And so by having a more word-for-word approach, it frees us from having to over-explain some of these concepts. And it also allows us to make our points from the very words of the Bible. You notice uh, that in in regards to the way that we do preaching uh, here. And so if it's Jerry or Zach or myself, whenever we're preaching, we will actually say, this, these are the actual words here, and then we'll begin to flesh out the implications of those words, not just the, the general thought. We take the words, and then we distill those into uh, thoughts. And so by having a more uh, word-for-word approach, it allows us to kind of emphasize individual words and phrases uh, and so forth, which is part of the goal of preaching, is to teach you uh, I think Brian uh, Martin said it on a, on a video at one time that uh, this approach to preaching changes the way you read the Scripture because all of a sudden you begin to recognize, I can do this. I can ask these same sort of questions. You might not have access to all of the resources and so forth, but you can ask the same questions that we're asking the text. Who, what, when, where, why, those sorts of things. And so it changes your approach and reading of Scripture. So let me give you a couple of examples um, again, not to bash any particular example uh, or any particular translation, but these are examples of places uh, from the NIV where if I was preaching out of the NIV, uh, it would actually sort of limit or hinder my ability to kind of bring out nuances that I think are important in uh, particular texts. And so let me give you a few of these, uh, and then I'll summarize, and then we'll have some uh, Q&A. So Hebrews 4.1, Hebrews 4.1. If you're reading that in the uh, uh, ESV, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. If you're reading the NIV, it says, Let us be careful. All right, so think about the difference between being careful and fearing. The Greek word there uh, is uh, related to the word phobia, right? The Greek word there is phobeo or something like that. And, uh, and so it's a word that means, and in all of the other places where it's translated, it has some sort of uh, connotation of fear. You think of the difference between fear and being careful or cautious. I'm careful when I'm carrying like something fragile. I'm fearful if I'm carrying a cobra, right? And so when, when uh, the author of Hebrews is writing this, he's trying to have that uh, sort of imagery more of a cobra sort of thing, sin, falling away, not remaining steadfast, is not something to just be careful with. It's something to fear. And, uh, and so that's a nuance, though, that if you were just looking at the NIV, you would miss. Again, not to say the NIV is a bad uh, translation, anything like that, just a, a little bit of color that you miss uh, there. Hebrews 6.1, ESV says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, the NIV, not laying again a foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. So what is meant by dead works there? The literal, just the two words are dead and works. Uh, And so the NIV has said it meant acts leading to death, but it's possible that uh, the works themselves are dead. What if that's what the author meant? Not that the works lead to death, but the works themselves are dead. You don't even have that option interpretive option within uh, the NIV. Uh, Let me give you uh, one that is probably um, one of the biggest sort of examples that you can really see what's going on uh, here and and how uh, certain translations might make it more difficult uh, to to 
capture some of the nuances. John chapter 11. Uh, this is, Jesus has just heard that Lazarus uh, has uh, uh, come ill. And uh, starting in verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, in the ESV, it's making a relationship there and saying because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus and so forth, because he loved them, he waited. And what does his waiting end up doing in John 11? What happens to Lazarus? He dies, right? Because Jesus waits, Lazarus dies. So what the text has just said is because Jesus loved him, he waited. And because he waited, he dies. In other words, there is this connection that you see between God's sovereignty and his will and the purpose of suffering and so forth. The NIV is going to obscure that a little bit uh, because it's going to say, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, verse 6, yet yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick. So in other words, uh, love and God's, uh, Jesus' delay are not as related. There is like a, uh, almost a contrary relationship between the two. The ESV allows you to see there is this relationship that exists that Jesus, uh, at times, his love compels him to do something that in the short term is very painful. And the NIV is going to obscure that. So again, not saying the NIV in, in any way is a bad translation. Certainly there is a place for it, just like there is a place for all of these other translations. I'm not sure about the cowboy uh, version or the skater Bible or the personal promise. But uh, in general, for all of these major sort of translations, there's a time and a place for them, yes and amen. I'm not trying to convince you uh, to go and to burn your NIV or something like that. I'm just showing you why it is that we've made the decision that we're not haphazard and what it is that we're using for preaching and teaching. There is a particular purpose for it that we want to be able to bring out nuances that you wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to see. So let me give you a summary of those reasons and, uh, and then I'll have Zach come up and uh, we'll do some Q&A. So summary, why it is that we prefer um, uh, word-for-word sort of approach. Uh, I got this from uh, uh, John Piper, so these are his words. A more literal translation respects the author's way of writing. It is a way of honoring the inspired writers. Secondly, translators are fallible, and they may mislead the English reader if they use unnecessary paraphrases to bring out one possible meaning and conceal others. Third, a more literal translation gives preachers more confidence that they can preach what the English text says with authority, that it reflects what the original Greek or Hebrew text says. And then fourth, a more literal translation which preserves ambiguities that are really there in the original text, keeps open the possibility of new insight uh, by future Bible uh, readers. And uh, so the general idea is you can only interpret We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we start into hermeneutics. You can only um, interpret what you can observe, and you can ob- only observe what is there. And, uh, and so if a translator obscures something that's in the original text because they're giving more paraphrase, you then are hindered in your ability to see uh, that uh, element and that nuance and to worship as a result of it. So, Zachary, you want to come up? And uh, we will do some Q&A. Modern translations. What questions, yeah? Yeah, Chris. Zach, <laughs> this is what you do to me. You give me the hard stuff. So, so his question is, do some of these translations that are just kind of hitting one uh, audience somehow disrespect or dishonor God's words? Is that kind of a fair summary? 
Uh, my thought would be, so when we talk about there's these different kinds of Bibles, we mean two things. Sometimes it's where they actually mess with the translation, like uh, Jeff was kind of reading with the Cowboys Bible, meaning not the Dallas Cowboys. That would be a very God-inspired Bible, but with the, uh, the Cowboy Bible. <clears throat> and uh, so, but other times when we talk about like, you know, the, the soldier's Bible or the, you know, women's devotional Bible or something, the text is the same as a translation we already have, and just the commentary and notes are there to bring out a certain thing. So yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of changing the meaning of the text. I think what you do is you always want to try to get to what the text is to its original audience and then explain it for today, not to just change it to reach today. I think that gets really confusing. Uh, when it comes to having certain kinds of notes in the Bible, though, where the, the translation stays the same and you just have notes for certain demographics and these kind of things, I think that's okay. The only thing I don't like about that is I think it plays to this modern conception that we have that is for somebody to really be able to speak truth into my life, they have to have an experience or understand where I'm coming from. And I think that's a form of existentialism that has crept into the church. So I, I like study Bibles, but I don't like it when it's, this is the, you know, Texas study Bible. So this is something that will really speak to Texans. Or this is the, uh, you know, I used to be a Cowboys fan and then I became a 49ers fan. And so every time there's talking about repentance, it'll talk about switching teams or something like that. So there's, there's different kinds. So my short answer is, I don't ever like it when the text is changed. Uh, when it comes to certain types of study Bibles, I like study Bibles. I don't like study Bibles for just one demographic because I, I think that one of the things we're trying to fight in our culture is to say, for somebody to give you truth, it doesn't matter your demographic or your background or these kind of things. Truth is truth. And so what those Bibles, I think, have a tendency to do is to say, this will more clearly communicate to this person because it starts with some of their presuppositions and these kind of things. And I think what that leads to is the kind of thing we talked about when we talked about sufficiency, where someone says, you know, Zach, you're a man, and you, so you can't tell me as a woman what my role should be in my marriage. Or Zach, you're of this particular race, so you can't speak to this other race's issue. Or Zach, you're of this demographic. So I think what it does is it plays into some of these uh, preferences. So, your thoughts? Good. Judy? Um, you were saying that if the English word would change meaning a lot. Mm -hmm. um, don't you think that Hebrew words change meaning? So, when you're translating from, when you start to get this picture of here, doesn't, aren't those changing as well? And how do you know that those haven't changed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So she, she asked about, uh, so the uh, sort of receptor language is constantly changing. How do we know that the original language, uh, or is the original language constantly changing? So Greek is constantly changing. Uh, Hebrew is constantly changing and so forth. But the, uh, when the text was actually written, that's kind of a static period in time. And so what we're doing is we're looking and we're saying, what did the words mean in this particular concept? So even within Greek, you have different periods of Greek. You have classical Greek, uh, and, uh, and then what we have in the Bible is called Koine Greek, common Greek. Uh, it, it's a unique sort of time period in the history of the Greek language. And so all we have to do is go back and we have to say, what did this Greek word mean when it was written? And that's all that, that, uh, that, that we're doing. We're not looking at what, what does that word now mean in modern Greek, if there is a, a relationship uh, between the two. Uh, we just look at, uh, in regards to what did, what did this word mean in the Hebrew or in the Greek at the time that it was written. That's all that matters to us. That the, the meaning is kind of fixed the moment that it's inscripturated. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I mean, by and large, there are places, you'll even see in the, in the scriptures, you'll see, you read the Psalms, and, and, uh, and, and you'll see the word Selah, all right, S-E-L-A-H. Uh, and if you look, there's a footnote there, and it says, uh, translators aren't 100% certain what this word means. They think it means like a musical pause, but they're not entirely positive. So there tends to be a footnote there. We have a lot more of those in Hebrew. Um, but, uh, but what's helpful also is that not only do we have the Hebrew text, we have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And so we can see how early people who spoke both Hebrew and Greek put that word into Greek uh, and, uh, and so forth. And so there's, there's a, an entire process built out, an entire sort of art and science to being able to go back and look and say, what did this original text mean uh, to its original audience and so forth. So... We can chat about that more. Uh, for the sake of time, I know that Zach needs to get out of here to, uh, to go uh, preach. Let me pray for us, and then uh, I'll stick around for a little bit if you have more questions. Father, thank you for 
uh, your love for us. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, the way that you use different translations, and even the way that you use different translations uh, <laughs> at different times in our life. That uh, certain periods of time I have been edified by the King James, and certain periods I have really uh, learned from the NIV, and in other periods from the NASB, and now from the ESV. And uh, you use all of those things uh, to accomplish good. And uh, and so I pray that no one would be discouraged, that no one would uh, uh, would feel like they're. A version that they're using is somehow uh, not a Bible or not good or anything like that. Lord, if, if in any way what I've communicated has uh, produced that in their heart, I pray that that would just uh, blow away uh, like chaff. And, uh, and so, God, we do love you, and we're grateful. We're grateful for your word, opportunity to read it and preach it. I pray as we go uh, into service uh, that we would be edified and encouraged as we consider together just the glories of your word as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so uh, we love you. We want to love you more. Would you help us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.